The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon, everybody, and uh, welcome to another episode of One Hour at a Time. This is Jonathan Ruth here. I'm your guest host today, and I am really, really pleased to have with us uh, two people who have collaborated to uh, provide a very informative and emotionally engaging and touching and, um, and far-reaching book called Overcoming OCD, A Journey to Recovery. Our guests today are Janet Singer and Seth Gillihan. Uh, welcome to both of you on the show today. Thank, Thank you. you. Nice to be here. Yeah, it's great to be here. Um, so just as by way of introduction, um, to our listeners, Janet Singer is an advocate for OCD awareness, and we're talking about obsessive-compulsive disorder. With the goal of spreading the word that obsessive-compulsive disorder, no matter how severe, is treatable. At the age of 18, her son Dan suffered from OCD, so debilitating he could not even eat. Today, thanks to exposure and response prevention therapy, which is also known as ERP therapy, he's a young man living his life to the fullest. Janet is going to talk about her family story, uh, as she did in her book, Overcoming OCD, A Journey to Recovery. She also writes regularly for psychcentral.com, as well as mentalhelp.net, and is published on many other websites, including Beyond OCD, Anxiety and Depression Association of America, and Mad in America. She's been an invited speaker at OCD conferences and started her own blog, OCD Talk, which is located at www.ocdtalk.wordpress.com. We'll talk a little bit more about about that later in the show. Uh, The blog has been running since 2010, and it currently reaches readers in 167 countries. And Seth Gillihan, Ph.D., is a clinical associate professor of psychology in the psychiatry department at the University of Pennsylvania. His publications include research articles, and book chapters on the effectiveness of cognitive behavioral therapy for anxiety and depression, how CBT works, and the use of brain imaging to study psychiatric disorders. And Dr. Gillihan's clinical practice is in Haverford, Pennsylvania. So Janet and Seth, again, welcome, and uh, it's really a pleasure to be able to speak with both of you this, this afternoon, um, and uh, hopefully you're, you're in a spot where you're enjoying some of the beautiful weather we're, we're having here in New England as well. I'm in New England as well. <laughs> yeah. Great. Things are lovely down in the right outside Philadelphia. Pretty uh, hot, humid. It feels like summer here. Yeah, it's off to a warm start, that's for sure. Yeah. Great. Well, you know, I, I think um, uh, our listeners would be really interested in, in hearing a little bit more about each of you from your perspective, and and also maybe how about how you got connected and and what inspired the two of you to collaborate to develop this, uh, this really incredible work of, of uh, professional literature. Yeah, Janet, okay. do you want to say something about that? Okay. Um, I could let you know how um, 
start with how we collaborated, if that's uh, something that uh, would be interesting to people. Um, as you read, Jonathan, I have a, a blog called OCD Talk, and um, Seth commented on one of my posts, and that was our first our first connection, and I I liked what he had to say. I liked how he wrote, and at the time, um, I was starting to have some guest bloggers, so I asked him if he would be interested in writing a, a guest post, and he very graciously agreed, um, and his post was uh, wildly successful with people still, this was a few years ago, a couple of years ago, and people are still commenting on it and um, getting, getting information and, and benefit from it, and he just has just a great way of uh, connecting with um, lay people as well as, you know, professionals and, and just really gets his message across. So I like the way um, that, he, that he wrote and what he had to say. And at the time, I was pretty much uh, wrapping up uh, writing my memoir, and I was pleased with the book, but I felt that something was missing. I felt that it was certainly giving people a message of hope because uh, my son did go on to overcome OCD and um, is, is doing well today, thankfully. But I just felt that it needed something more. It needed more information about OCD in general. It needed more uh, professional input to, to really um, give the information that people would need to, to conquer this disorder. So I immediately thought of Seth and asked him if he would be interested in, in possibly collaborating, and, and he was certainly interested in finding out more about it. And I sent him my proposal, and I sent him my drafts, and we went back and forth for, for quite a while, and I think both realized that uh, it would be a, a good fit for both of us, and, and the rest is history. So I, w- I was very, very fortunate. Um, you know, basically the Internet brought us together, so um, it, it was a good thing. So that, is, that is fantastic. And just to... Uh... I just got dropped out of our call here for a couple of seconds, so I'm just oh. coming back into it. Um, I apologize for that. I don't know what, what happened with the phone system here, but um, but I so and it sounds like uh, through your blog posts, um, it, you know, the two of you um, really found an idea together to uh, to kind of move some of these thoughts forward in, in the form of the book. Right. Yeah. Well, I had written. I had already written my the memoir part. I had already written our story, and I was looking for. Um, additional input, input from a professional and, you know, not just a mom who's kind of telling her story, but also more concrete information that could be helpful to people who are going through the journey currently. So um, I, think it, I think it ended up being a good mix. Yeah, I was really, uh, you know, as soon as I, I read the manuscript that Janet sent me, it was an easy decision. It was just such a, a, a well-told story and a and a compelling story. And one of the big problems that I've been trying to, to tackle when I was when I was full time research faculty was, you know, we've we've got these treatments, these psychological treatments that help the majority of people. They can treat very severe conditions like severe OCD, and it's extremely hard for people to find them. People aren't uh, clinicians aren't generally using them. People who need the treatments often don't know about them. And so I was interested as I was leaving the research setting to get a sense of what was happening outside of, outside of the, the ivory tower. And, uh, and so came across Janet's blog and was really impressed with, 
with the kind of grassroots work that she was doing to to make uh, a, I mean, for for so many families who have come across information that that she's presented, I mean, it really is a life changing and 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 can even be a life saving uh, resource. And so I was uh, really happy to to connect with her and then get to uh, you know work a little on the blog and then and then ultimately have this this collaboration on the book. Apologize as well. We seem to be having trouble with our phone lines here at the office where I'm calling from, so I did get dropped again, but I'm back here. Okay. You know, as he was saying that there are, he knew that there, you know, the, re- the researchers know about these great uh, treatments, but how do you um, spread the word to the therapists and the people that need uh, you know, they need these therapies to, to recover. And um, that was obviously, um, if, you know, in the book, that is a, that is a big uh, part of the problem. And it's not just in my book, but for people with OCD in general, one of the biggest hurdles really in recovering is finding the right treatment because a lot of people don't know about ERP therapy. A lot of therapists don't know about ERP therapy or don't use it or don't know how to use it. Uh, correctly, so excuse right. me, that is a a big issue, and, and one of the main reasons um, why I felt compelled to write the book because I just thought this is crazy. There's a treatment out there, and you know people aren't using it. So um, that was a big uh, a big impetus for my um, writing the book, wanting to get the word out there. Right. Yeah, I think one thing psychologists tend to do well is to develop effective treatments, and one thing they tend to do poorly for whatever reason is, is get the word out about those, those treatments. I, I was actually talking for, for a while when I was at Penn with people in, at Warden who specialize in marketing, saying there has to be a better way to, to get the message out there, that the, the message that Jan has been focused on, that uh, focused on getting out, that these treatments exist and they work, and and they're not they're not the type of things that you that you tend to find if you, you know, pick a, a therapist at random to, you know, for treatment for OCD. Um, and I, I mean, I, I'm sure a lot of it has to do with the um, with the the way money works. There's not it's not like a, a drug where there's someone who stands a lot to gain in terms of really investing in educating the public about right, the availability. Right. <laughs> exactly. Well, and I think you also made a great point that it's a, uh, in the book, uh, both of you, you know, it's a, ERP is a therapy that almost um, contradicts in, in some way other forms of counseling or therapy that are more supportive in nature and, and trying to help folks reduce the, their feeling of pressure or stress by letting know it's okay. And it sounds like some of the, the work that's done through ERP is helping people get used to the tension and be okay with the tension between their fear and their behavior and uh, being able to kind of move forward even though there may still be some fear. Right. Excellent. Yeah, that's an excellent point. I mean, my son's first therapist, and this is, you hear this story over and over again, um, didn't know how, you know, he thought he knew how to treat OCD, but he didn't, and, you know, he would just kind of reassure him all the time, it's going to be okay, everything's going to be fine, and that is, that's just fuel for the fire of OCD. It's the exact wrong thing to do. Um, so here we are sending our son off to, you know, therapy once a week thinking he's getting help when in reality he's actually getting worse. Right. 
Right. It, it just seems really, you know, it, it's almost an enigma, right? I mean, everyone is taught to be reassuring and, uh, and nurturing, and but if you're unless you're trained to really recognize that the the core of OCD really is about, you know, getting that comfort level with with the tension that you feel. Right, um, it's living with the you know, uncertainty. Not, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. right, right. Yeah, usually, and, I mean, we do we do tell the person, you know, that the goal is for you to feel better and and to not be so worried about this stuff, and actually. Most people who go through ERP do end up with a greater sense of, of certainty at the end. You know, if I'm worried I'm going to hurt someone, by the end of treatment, a person feels like, that. you know, I, I know I'm not going to do that. Like, I feel, it feels more like bedrock that I can say that now. But it is, we kind of get there backwards. Usually, if we're going to go from New York to L.A., we would travel west. But in this case, let's do the thing that makes the least sense. Let's travel east, and we go all the way around the world, and then we end up getting there only because in OCD there's no other way. If we try to get there directly, right. it's going to backfire. Right. Well, it's really, uh, you know, it's an amazingly helpful um, strategy to use ERP, and we can, we're going to talk a little bit more about that after the break and also maybe um, talk a little bit more about uh, about your story, Janet, and, and what, what, what you experienced in really trying to find help for your son, Dan. Okay, We'll be right back good. after the break. listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Tune in every Tuesday for C. diff, spores, and more with hosts Nancy Kerala and Dr. Chandra Bali Ghosh. Our program is to provide information about C. diff, healthcare-associated infections, and more. Nancy is a C. diff survivor, healthcare professional, and the founder and executive director of the C. diff Foundation. And Dr. Ghosh is the chairperson of research and development for the C. diff Foundation. Together with their guests, we'll explore infection prevention, treatments, environmental safety, and more. Listen every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. And welcome back, everybody, to One Hour at a Time on this sunny Monday afternoon, um, Jonathan Ruthier and your guest host, and we are here today with Janet Singer, who is an advocate for the awareness of obsessive compulsive disorder, 
and Seth Gillihan, Ph.D., who is a clinical assistant professor of psychology at the University of Pennsylvania and who has uh, done extensive work on the effectiveness of CBT for anxiety and depression and, and OCD. So, uh, but just before the break, we were talking a little bit about uh, about your experience, Janet, and it was really striking to me when I when I uh, when I picked up the copy of Overcoming OCD: A Journey to Recovery, your book that you co-authored with Seth, and um, you know the way you you opened the dialogue about the experience you had when you went to um, visit your son at college and uh, the experience that you had of seeing what a change had taken place over the, that semester at school. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about what that was like for you. Yeah, sure. Um, our son was, we, we knew he had OCD before he went off to college uh, 1,500 miles from home, and the only uh, way we knew he had OCD was because he told us. He had diagnosed himself with the help of the Internet, um, and we confirm that diagnosis with his pediatrician who said, you know, he should, it's not a big deal. He should probably go talk to a therapist. And so he went to see a therapist who we later found out really didn't know how to, how to treat OCD. But he still, you know, he seemed okay to us, um, not, uh, not really debilitated in any way that, that we could see. And off he went to his, his dream school 1,500 miles from home. Uh, the first semester went, seemed to go well. Um, it was the second semester that we just noticed, my husband and I, through um, phone calls and just, um, you know, conversations with him that something, something wasn't, uh, wasn't right. He just didn't sound right. And uh, we actually made um, a couple of trips down to, down to see him, and he just seemed anxious and out of sorts and, and not really himself. We, we encouraged him to, you know, talk to the counselors there or, um, you know, do other, other kind of self-help things, and he was pretty resistant. And that's about where, where we were through the middle of the second semester until things got, got really bad um, through a phone call, one phone call with him. Um, you know, I, we basically said, uh, Dan, you've got to... You've got to go see a therapist at school, or, or you're going to have to come home. And he kept saying, "I can't, I can't." And I thought that was quite unusual for him because uh, one great thing about um, his uh, kind of journey was that he was always very willing to, to get help when he really needed it. And he just kept saying he can't. And what we later realized he was saying to us was he physically could not bring himself to walk out of his room and go into the building where the, um, where the therapists were. So obviously I got on a plane and went, went down there, and that's kind of where the, where the book starts, where he really was very, uh, very debilitated. He would get stuck in um, you know, certain places for hours and hours at a time. And I knew very little about OCD at the time. Um, you know, we knew he had it, but I... I just wasn't knowledgeable, and in my mind, some, I just figured something else is going on here. This isn't OCD. I mean, OCD is about washing hands, <laughs> um, right. which is just you know such a misconception. Um, and so that was just a very, very scary uh, time for us. And we were. Um, I, I stayed with him. He he was adamant about wanting to finish the semester out. Um, He's studying animation, which was a dream of his for, for so long, and he had about three weeks left. And so the book, uh, a good 
part of the beginning of the book is focusing on those three weeks that we spent together, and I um, kind of learned on the fly <laughs> through um, talking to a friend who was a clinical psychologist about kind of how to help him help him um, survive for those those few weeks before he could get additional help. Right. Well, and it certainly sounds like, I mean, there was a big change from when he left for school and, and that last, that period where, you know, you were there with him for those three weeks. And, you know, college is a stressful time for anybody. And um, although, you you know, I think as parents, you, we think, you know, hey, our kids are going off to school. It's going to be an adjustment. They're going to have a lot of new friends. It's going to be, there's going to be a lot of fun, but also some stress. But, right. um, but you, you know, so... So things certainly got to a level that were a lot more than what you what you think of as typical. Right. It it appeared to be a huge change to me, um, but looking back now, I think it was because we weren't with him uh, for most of the time. I think it was more gradual than than we realized. Um, he was just able to really hide it very well. I mean, when I first saw his room. Um, that had been that way for a while. I mean, it looked like a war zone, literally. I mean, there were just, you know, it was, that's also described in the book, just a just an uninhabitable uh, space. And this, these are things that had been going on that we didn't realize, and it's really um, quite common for those with OCD to present a, um, you know, a normal front, if you will, because they know um, that everything they're thinking, their obsessions and their compulsions make no sense. They, they are aware of that. And so, you know, you don't want people to think you're crazy. And so it's very easy for them to, you know, hide um, uh, and just kind of pretend everything's okay. It really wasn't, though. <laughs> right, right. And, and Seth, you know, um, what, you know, what are your thoughts after you haven't, you know, having read that, um, you know, was, do, you, do you look at the stress of the transition into school or some other influence in terms of, you know, that, that kind of progression, or is this sort of typical for people with OCD? Yeah, yeah, there, there's a ton of variability in, in, in how the OCD expresses itself and changes over time, and, and a big stressor like, like leaving home, going to school, those kinds of things definitely can can trip a person from, you know, over from from more kind of manageable OCD to really just just getting completely stuck. And and as I as I read as I read the account, my heart just I mean, it just goes out for for parents like Janet who find themselves in that situation where you know their kids are are far from home, and there's so much confusion about you know what is going on. And, uh, and and what you know, what kind of help is available? And and it really when when OCD, I mean OCD is never true. OCD is never never easy. It's it's never you know cute or funny the way it's often de- depicted in in TV shows. But when when OCD is bad, it's just awful. I mean, it just grinds a person's life to a halt. And so so it certainly can that that can happen at any time. It can happen uh, for no apparent reason, but if there's a major stressor or change, that definitely can bring it on. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And, Janet, you saw it, you know, sort of as a one, you know, one point in time and then a few months later, but like you said, there were probably markers all along the way. Right. In retrospect, uh, that, we could see yeah. some of them, but at the time, it was like, oh, my goodness, what what's going on here? This isn't, you know, this is just totally new and, and, and so, um, you know, severe. 
And it wasn't immediately clear to you at the time that, oh, this is what severe OCD looks like. It seems right, like it right. I something. thought something else was happening. I, I didn't know. I, I just figured, okay, he has OCD, but now what's, what's all this? <laughs> I, I didn't believe that, that, was, that OCD could be that bad. Right, that it really can make a person freeze, just like need to sit in a chair or not be able to, to walk up a flight of stairs. Exactly, People, exactly. I really had no understanding of that yeah. at the time. It is just so striking how OCD so often attaches to movement. So people will get stuck as if I don't move in the right way or if I have the wrong thought when I'm moving, then I have to repeat it or I can't move until I have the right one. And, and it can really, and people can be stuck for hours in the same spot. Right, right, right. Well, that, that did happen to Dan many times. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you, I think you've both remarked, too, how, and certainly you did uh, in the book, and I think this is a really important point for our listeners to hear, that people who are experiencing a lot of symptoms of, of OCD, they also, they recognize that this is, um, that this is not normal, that this is not right, or that there's something irrational about it. Can you talk more about that? Do you want to address that, Seth? Or? Yeah, 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 I'm happy to. Yeah, I think that's one of the most frustrating things about OCD is that a person is, is almost always, I mean, the, the, there's some, there can be a very low insight into, in, into the OCD in some cases, but, but almost always a person knows that the, the worries and what they're doing in response to it make no sense, and, uh, and on the other hand, they're unable to stop doing the behaviors that, that they're doing to try to prevent bad things from happening. So I think that's, that's part of what's most frustrating for a person who has the OCD. You know, you can feel like, I'm a very rational person. This is not me. And people around them might think the same way. They'll say, but, you know, you're, you, you know that doesn't make sense. You're able to do things reasonab- reasonably in other areas of your life. You're a logical person. This doesn't make sense. And... And exactly, I mean, that's what OCD is. It doesn't make sense. And if it's hard to understand, then that's, that's really part of the condition. That's part of OCD. Is If it were easy to understand, it probably wouldn't be OCD. Right, right. That's a, people have commented to me that, you know, just being involved in advocacy for, for a while now, they say, oh, you know, it's good that you have such a good understanding of OCD. And I just say, understanding, you know, I don't understand anything about it because it, as Seth says, it makes no sense. I just know that it's a disorder that, you know, makes people act a certain way, but I have no understanding, you know, there's just, you can't rationalize it. And I loved when right. you wrote in a recent blog post, Janet, where you said the, the most important thing really is understanding your loved one, which clearly you did, and that's what made all the difference. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, just remembering that they're, you know, they're still the same person under all that, and, uh, um, you know, I think a lot of, um, one of the problems with OCD, because what you just said, that, you know, people will look at the person with OCD and say, but wait, you're a logical person, but yet, you know, you have to turn the light switch on a thousand times, so, so just stop it. And, and it's frustrating for, you know, parents or loved ones who will just, just can't understand that they just, you know, a person with OCD just can't stop. And so what, what I try and tell people is that you have to understand that this is a real disorder. I mean, who would do something like this if they could stop? I mean, who, you know, what's, you know, for attention? I mean, it's just, a, that, that, you know, that makes less sense than, than OCD. So um, I think people 
as nonsensical as it is, they just have to realize that this is real, that the person is suffering, that they can't control it. You know, there is treatment, but when they're going through it, this is not something that, you know, it's like telling somebody with asthma to stop having trouble breathing. You just, mm-hmm. you can't do it. Well, and I think the, um, you know, the point you made, too, is that the people are, are really good intentioned, but but are missing the boat when they try to do things to help accommodate the you know um, right. the person who is experiencing symptoms by making you know by alleviating their stress or alleviating maybe uh, the things that they're having compulsions about. So so um, because they see the dysfunction that the that the disorder can create in the person's life, and they're just trying to find some way to make the person feel better and get some relief so they can go on with the things that they really want to do. Right. So, um, yeah. And it's, it's got to be a really hard thing to, to help, you know, be able to tolerate that the, the other side of that, which is to, you know, which, which sort of defies logic. So we're right. going um, to take a quick break here, um, and when we come back, uh, we'll talk a little bit more about symptoms of obsessive-compulsive disorder uh, and, um, and really the... Uh, the importance of family support in this and and having access to the right treatment. So uh, we'll be back in just a couple minutes after the break. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Do you know about Reiki? This method of healing can complement Western medicine as well as other alternative practices. Besides healing, it can have the additional effect of making you feel more positive about yourself and the world around you. By tuning into For the Love of Reiki with host Paula Vale, you'll find how Reiki can improve your health, bring balance into your life, and fill you with joy. For the Love of Reiki is broadcast live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. And welcome back, everybody, to today's episode of One Hour at a Time. This is Jonathan Luthier. I'm your guest host, and I'm here with Janet Singer and Seth Gillihan. We're talking about obsessive compulsive disorder today. Um, so, um, so Janet, um, in your book, Overcoming OCD: A Journey to Recovery, you chronicle 
your son's entrance into treatment when, when symptoms really got to the point where they were uh, really making it difficult for him to, um, to, you know, to sustain even, a, you know, any semblance of a typical day. And right. um, you had a lot of hopes and, and you put a lot of stock into uh, a residential, you know, a, a, a recommended residential treatment program for your son. And right. um, so I, I just wondered what that was like for you to kind of be sort of on hold and waiting for him to be able to go there. And, and maybe you could share with our listeners what the anticipation was like or um, how that was helping, you know, helping your family at the time. Okay. Um, after uh, Dan finished out his, his semester when I was with him for three weeks, uh, he had, when I had been down there previously when things weren't quite as bad, but they were still um, bad enough, a psychiatrist that we had met with uh, recommended um, a residential treatment program. And uh, talking with, with Dan about it, he was, he was so excited. It was like we were sending him to summer camp. He just he wanted to get better. He was uh, very happy to go. And so the decision to send him there was made easier by his willingness and excitement. And I know that is not always the case with those with OCD. There's um, often some uh, treatment resistance uh, there. You know, people resist uh, getting treatment. So um, it never occurred to us not to send him, we, we were very, uh, when, you know, I look back now, I think, why didn't I research this? Why didn't I do this? Why didn't I do that? But I think when you're in crisis and, um, you know, people that you, um, you know, that you respect and, and you know, uh, are listening to recommend something, and I'm not even, you know, I'm not saying that it was the wrong decision, but we just, we just didn't research it much. And um, this was a, a world-renowned program, and, and um, he... From the time he came home till the time he he went there was about a month, and he was in very bad shape. And and the waiting was actually it was the only thing that really kind of kept us going. We just every time things just seemed so hopeless, we just kept saying, "Oh, you know, he'll be going to treatment soon. He'll be going to treatment soon." So we had a lot, um, you know, a lot of hope for his recovery there. Um, At the treatment center, there, I I just want to stress that um, there is no question that they knew and they know the right treatment for uh, obsessive-compulsive disorder. They knew the exposure and response prevention therapy. It was all very well uh, run, and um, that aspect of the uh, program was was extremely helpful, and, um, you know, I don't think it would be pretty tough to argue with that. Um, The problems that we had were um, he was there for nine weeks, and about halfway in, Things started. The, the, things started to shift a little, as you said. He, um, our son. He first he wanted. If I could just back up a little, the reason he wanted to go for the summer mainly was because he didn't want to take any time off from school. He wanted to get well mm-hmm. so he could go back and start his sophomore semester. Because as I mentioned, this was his his dream school. He was doing what he loved, um, and before the OCD kicked in, was just incredibly happy there. So um, he was there for the summer, and about halfway through, he tells us that his OCD is too severe to go back to school, and he's going to stay as long as he possibly can at this program. Um, and my husband and I, there, and, and this is talked about in the book, there was something, it just wasn't him. We just knew that this mm-hmm. was not coming from him because we, we knew our son. And that, I think, is another one of the main issues. When, um, when somebody with OCD severe enough to go to a residential treatment program enters the program, the staff there 
don't really know the person because the person is in rough shape. They're not themselves. And while they know how to treat OCD, they don't know the whole person. They don't know their values. They don't know their dreams, their goals. Um, And I understand that. I mean, there's no way they could know that. Um, But we felt, my husband and I felt very uh, shut out. Um, Dan had just turned 19, so he was over 18. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, we felt the best thing for him would be for us all to collaborate together and, you know, get our input and talk about, you know, those things that they didn't know about Dan. Because even at that point, Dan didn't know them himself. You know, he would say things like, oh, you know, school's not that important to me anymore and, and things like that when we knew that maybe at that moment he was speaking the truth, but we knew that that wasn't him. That wasn't what he wanted from his, from his life. Um, so it got, it, it got um, complicated, and we did end up taking him out after nine weeks so that he would have the chance um, to go back to school, which he eventually decided to do on, on his own. But if we had just kind of listened to what the people at the treatment center were telling us, he, you know, he might still be there. <laughs> they, right, they were willing right. to keep him forever. And, and, you know, I think what, what was really, um, really interesting in the book and, and I think would be really interesting for our listeners to learn more about is I guess there's really two things that, that come to mind for me. One was your, your family's incredible drive to keep your, your son's dreams alive for him. Right. Even when he got to a point of feeling confused about what he should be doing next. And, and the other piece is that you talked about, um, and I think Seth wrote about this as well, uh, and then we can comment here. The, the nature of OCD being that you need to attach to something, uh, to, you know, to some thought uh, or some, you know, some, some object outside of you to, uh, to start to feel safe you know, in stressful situations. And, and that there's a risk sometimes in, you know, that that, that um, that a person can get stuck in a, in a residential treatment center because of that attachment. So, Seth, can you say more about that? Yeah, I mean, what comes to mind is this feeling of, of having to do something perfectly. And if my life has been miserable lately, and I'm finally starting to see some light at the end of the tunnel, that maybe there's a way, maybe there's life after OCD or without OCD, then, oh my God, OCD has a, a because it's, such a nasty being, it's likely to attach to that. Like, oh, yeah, you like you're starting to enjoy thinking about life without OCD? Well, it'd be a shame if something were to happen to that life. And then, and then the OCD can kind of sneak back in the back door. So then the OCD becomes about doing the treatment perfectly, and, or at least it can for, for a lot of people. Even for those who, or it doesn't, there's certainly a fear of, of I can't go back to the way things were, so I have to make sure that I do exactly what I need to do to stay well. And, and the risk, of course, as, as Janet writes about so well, is the person is lost in the process. Mm-hmm. Right, so they, be, right. they, they become their disorder, or they become their treatment, as opposed to saying I'm a person with a goal of you know, becoming a, an animator or a lawyer or an engineer and yeah. uh, right. lose track of that. Right. One yeah. of the things that Dan used to say to us when we were when we were discussing or arguing about this, all you know, at the, when he was still at the treatment center, he would always finish by you know by saying you know if I if I go back to school or if I you know do anything you know if I leave here then I won't have time to I, I won't have time to focus on my OCD. And every time he said that, I would think, well, that's a good thing 
But, you know, what he was talking about, he just felt, as Seth said, that he had to, you know, he couldn't couldn't leave there until he was 100% OCD-free because... That's what he needed to, you know, to get his life back. And, and that, I think, is just a very dangerous way to think because then you really can be there forever because, you know, we felt, okay, you know, leave the treatment program. Of course, we're not going to leave and just, you know, dump you off and you get set up with a good therapist. And then you work on what you need to work on while you're continuing with your life as best you can because otherwise, you know, there's, there's no life, really. So, um it, it does get very, uh, very complicated. The other issue we had with the, that I think is worth bringing up with the treatment program is that um, we were very fortunate. Um, we didn't know Seth at the time, but we have, have um, a friend who's a um, psychologist who was kind of helping us along. But if it weren't for him, you know, we're so used to just deferring to the experts. And, you know, he's at this treatment center for OCD, and everybody knows, every, you know, they're experts on OCD, and they're telling us, one thing, and we're thinking something else. It's very easy to just not trust your own um, your own instincts, even though we knew we knew our son. It's very hard not to defer to the experts, and I, I, I think that you know maybe if we didn't have our friend who was kind of saying, you know, you really know Dan the best, and and um, he felt also that he should leave the program at that point. That you know, it's very easy to be intimidated and just say, well, they know what they're talking about, and Dan seems to right. kind of go along with it, so let's just do what they say. Um, and I think that you know that that's unfortunately what happens too often. Right. Right. Well, you know, I think what was really um, inspiring was, you know, the way that you um, looked at things from from more than one angle. And you said, you know, this, or and you trusted your gut. And you said, well, that's not my son. You know, that's, you know, and I need, and in the the course of his illness, somebody needs to stand up for him and his dreams and his goals and and be the voice of that part of his life. And, um, but that must have also come with a lot of, Tension and uh, and conflict. You know, with a lot the of second writers, guessing. A lot of right? it's the right thing to do. Um, sure. And you know, in retro, you, you do the right thing at that moment as you see it to be the right thing. You know, if we, you know, I don't know. Maybe if he had stayed at the residential treatment program, maybe that would have been a good. You know, it, it, you'd never really know what the other option is going to bring you. But I, um, we all feel even today that it was the right thing to do. Um, even though it was very bumpy after he left, um, we felt he, he really needed to get out of there. He, everything, he just, you know, every, every, um, every um, positive thing that he would do while he would, you know, we would take him out for lunch sometime and if he was able to eat better than he could before, he'd say, you know, Scott would be so proud of me, the therapist would be so proud of him, and everything kind of went back to them. It really was like he had lost himself. Um, right. So there were, there were a lot of issues um, that we just yeah. felt like it's, it's just really time to leave. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like a really challenging time, too, and, and, and you know, really trying to figure out who do you trust. Right, you right. It was, it, was, go it was a tough time. You know, the professionals. And I'm sure a lot of other uh, family members kind of go through the same same process in thinking about, you know, how do they take in information from others and professionals and when it rubs against what you're thinking or what, you know, what your felt sense is about right. your son, your family member, you know, how do you take that forward? Right, right. Yeah, it's complicated. Yeah. Um, and so when we come back from the break, um, 
I, I think our listeners would really like to hear uh, you know more about some of the advocacy efforts that you're involved in, Janet and and Seth. Um, I think also you know really what's happening to help advance the uh, the treatment for people with obsessive compulsive disorder. Uh, these days. So we'll be back in a couple of minutes after the break. Thank you again for joining us on uh, One Hour at a Time, and we'll, we'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Step by step, you made it through the journey of pregnancy. Now your baby is in your arms and you're on the cusp of a new journey, breastfeeding. As a new parent, you receive a lot of advice, much of it conflicting, some of it outdated. Tune into Born to be Breastfed with host Marie Biancuso to bust through the myths about feeding your baby. Marie and her guests will help you figure out what you can expect and put you on the best and surest path on your breastfeeding journey. Listen every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. And good afternoon, everybody, and welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is Jonathan Ruth here. I'm here as your guest host today. And I'm with Janet Singer and Seth Gillihan, and we're talking about obsessive-compulsive disorder. So, Seth, um, you know, we've been using the term ERP uh, to talk about the, the specific type of therapy that is used to help people who have obsessive-compulsive disorder. And I wonder if you could just kind of lay out for us the, the, the elements of ERP. Yes, yeah, for sure. So I think a shorthand way to think about it is that, that OCD always tells us what we need to do because we just do the opposite of what the OCD is demanding. So OCD says that you, you have to avoid the things that cause you anxiety, that cause your obsessions, these fears about awful things that are going to happen that I'm going to be responsible for. And you have to, to do these compulsive behaviors or rituals to make sure that the bad things don't happen and repeat them if you have any doubt that they might actually happen. So the opposite would be we approach the things that are causing the anxiety, and that, that would be the exposure part. And then we do nothing in response. We don't do rituals. We don't do compulsions. We allow the anxiety to come. And then if we stay with that anxiety and don't do a compulsion, then 
our bodies, our nervous systems will take will take care of the anxiety on their own. So, so it really is about so it, breaking that cycle by not doing compulsions. And it sounds like by uh, changing behavior, you're also changing the body's response to the stress that goes with you know, with the thinking. It does exactly yes. So the things that used to be terrifying when we, after we've done ERP are no longer terrifying. A person can cannot be bothered by things that that once were totally unimaginable to be around. Okay, and it so if somebody it's very fears. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, uh, sorry. I was just going to say it's it's very structured. Uh, there's a pretty clear plan for what's going to happen. It uh, traditionally it's been done with around 15 to 17 sessions or so. I've seen people get pretty much all the way better after six sessions. I've seen people still kind of going strong 25 sessions in. So there's a there's a big range. But I think it's really important for for parents and and people who with OCD who are looking for the treatment to make sure the person if they say they're doing CBT, make sure it's actually exposure and response prevention because you can call pretty much anything. CBT, but if you know that it's ERP, chances are it's, it's going to be something that's actually been shown to work. Great. And, you know, are there any studies right now looking at how, um, you know, how the brain is involved in, in OCD and also, you know, how the treatment responds in, in the brain? There have been over the years. I think the first was in 92 by Baxter and colleagues, and, and they found changes in, in parts of the brain called the basal ganglia that the changes looked pretty similar across medication and psychological treatment. So there definitely seem to be brain areas that are different when a person has OCD, at least on average, you see differences. And those differences resolve when treatment is effective. So we're really affecting the brain. And, and the changes happen whether a person uses medication or just changes their thinking and behavior. So, and then there have been updated studies since then, but you know, trying to get a better sense of what are the brain circuits that are involved in OCD. Right, right. Well, I think that that's a direction that the entire uh, mental health field and, and uh, addiction treatment field are really putting a lot of emphasis in right now. Is that these are these are things that are caused by abnormalities in the way different parts of the brain relate to one another. Right. That's sort of the current thinking. It's certainly the push. It's certainly what NIMH, National Institute of Mental Health, is focusing on. It's really not clear how much that line of research is going to benefit treatment. I mean, the best, best treatment's sort of funny to think about. We don't really need to know where in the brain these things are happening in order for them to be effective. Right. So we'll see if there's much, much uh, benefit from all the millions of dollars that are spent on the brain research. Right, right. And Janet, you know, um, you know, big piece of of help for uh, for your son, and I think for many others, is the way that you know you've stayed stayed involved in his care as his family. And I, I just wonder if you could talk a little bit more about um, you know what what advice you'd have for other family members, you know, who have somebody in their family who's going through treatment or who's experiencing these symptoms. Um, you know, what what can they do, or what can they be thinking about? Um, in order to to be helpful. Okay. Um, as far as um, 
you know, parents or family members of a, of a young person uh, with OCD, um, I, this is something I mentioned before, is just to acknowledge that this is a real disorder. This is, you know, not something they can just snap out of. And then I really do think one of the most difficult aspects of, of getting, uh, you know, um, of recovering is getting that right treatment. As Seth said, you know, there are people that, that say, oh, I treat OCD all the time, but you've got to make sure that, um, that they're qualified and, um, you know, well-trained therapists in ERP. And uh, the International OCD Foundation has um, a great website and also a list of questions that you can ask a potential therapist to kind of help you gauge whether that's, um, you know, whether that's the case. The other thing for parents, which is this, it boggles my mind that we were actually never um, told this even when our son was at a residential treatment program, was parents and family members need to be trained how to treat the person, you know, their, their loved one with OCD because it's really, as Seth said with the treatment, it's, it's the opposite of, what, of how you would normally treat somebody. I mean, when we first found out Dan had OCD, anything that would cause him anxiety, I would say to him, oh, then don't do that. You don't have to do that. I mean, I was doing the, you know, I was, I was enabling him without realizing it because as a parent, all you want is for your, you know, is for your child to feel better. Um, right. So we need that education. People, you know, we families need to sit down with the therapist, need to meet with the therapist and say, what do I do? How can I help in the recovery process? And, and a good therapist will be more than happy, you know, to meet with you and, and say, you know, you can't do his laundry for him. He's got to do that himself. If, you know, if he thinks it's contaminated and he can't touch this or that, he's got to, you know, he's got to get past that. He's got to, that's got to be part of his therapy. So things like that um, where family members, you know, you can go to therapy and make these strides and then go home and have it all negated because, you know, the family members don't know uh, the proper way to, um, to treat their loved one. And just the, the other thing I hear a lot is um, I'll, I'll get emails from people who say, you know, my, my child is seven or eight and, I, you know, they've been diagnosed with OCD, but it's really not that bad. I don't think we're going to do anything now. And my advice yeah. there is what are you waiting for? You know, you don't want to wait until it's that bad. You want to catch it when they're young, when they can learn these techniques, because one of the big benefits of ERP therapy is that the person with OCD can become his or her own therapist. They learn the techniques. They know what they have to do. And if you can start, if you have a child who you know has OCD, don't wait for anything. Get them the right treatment because that will hopefully make things a lot easier down, down the road. You know, so many people that end up suffering for 20, 30 years just never, you know, they always had, in their memory, they've always had OCD. They didn't know what it was. They never had the right treatment. If we can catch it early, there's such a better chance of it just not really not being that big a deal for them. So um, that would be another. Well, it sounds like if you start advice. early, I mean, the, the the family, everybody in the family can learn, you know, how to how to you know, change the way they relate to the disorder exactly, as well. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And, and, and um, a lot of good books out there for children. You know, they, that OCD can be looked at as a bully, and what would you do with a you know with a bully? Would you know you would. Uh, it's the same the same way that you you would act. You would just like not let them get to you. You would ignore them. You would do the opposite of what they want you to do. And it's it's you know children can you know Seth can probably speak to this, but you know I think kids as young as four and five can can get you know can get something out of that. So um, that I think is a is a very important thing. Right. 
So just in the last uh, minute or so that we have here, I just uh, I, I would like to kind of give you the opportunity to talk about the you know the blogging that you're doing and um, you know where uh, where else people can get some information. And certainly um, they can pick up a copy of your book, Overcoming OCD: Journey to Recovery. Um, I'm assuming they could probably get that on Amazon, or is it available in the Kindle version as well? It's, yes, it's available on Amazon and all the um, online book sites. It's um, also in many libraries now, and it is available as, a, as an e-book also, or now on Kindle. Okay. Um, so it's out there, and actually in the book, there, at the end, there is a good, um, a, a good resource uh, section with, with um, organizations and books and, and websites. Uh, one thing that might be interesting to people is the um, International OCD Foundation has a conference every year, and this year it is in Boston. I know you're New England-based, um, and that's July 31st to August 2nd. It's an amazing, amazing conference, and it's for uh, people with OCD, loved ones, um, therapists, experts. So um, it brings a whole, um, dif- you know, different uh, perspectives together, and it's always uh, a really, uh, a really great conference. Um, so people can find out more about that on the. Um, just you know, type in International OCD Foundation, and you'll you know you'll get that information. So, a lot of that sounds uh, like a great resource. As as yeah. does your blog, which is ocdtalk.wordpress.com. Correct. And um, you know, I, I want to thank you both again for coming on the show today. I thought we um, really provided uh, some some great information to our listeners. Again, uh, for folks out there who want uh, to uh, pick up a copy, it's Over- Overcoming OCD: A Journey to Recovery. And thank you for spending the afternoon with us, a part of your afternoon with us here, one hour at a time. Um, and uh, we look forward to having you back next Monday at the same time. Thank you, Jonathan. It was a real pleasure. We appreciate you joining us today for One Hour at a Time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.